0: Welcome to Season 4 of Word. You've committed to ensuring this podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region continues. Word has grown as a direct result of your contributions to KJZZ. Please consider a gift of 10 20 maybe even $30 a month to help ensure this kind of programming reaches you and others. If you're already a member, thanks very much. If not, it's real easy to become one. Just go to kjzz.org and click on the Donate tab. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. Thanks again, and now, on with Word.
1: Word, I'm going to say the word.
0: In the beginning was the word. 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 Word.
2: Word. Word. Was the word.
3: From the KJZZ studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon.
0: Coming up on Word, a transplant from the Mariana Islands is in Nevada now and brings his love of poetry in the Southwest with him.
1: One night in Yuma, Lady Cougar from Tombstone Territory, hot night in Yuma.
0: Plus, we'll explore a new novel from a Pueblo Indian author that's about to be released this month.
2: This one is pretty much an epic fantasy or what they call high fantasy. So if you like a Game of Thrones or a N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, this will probably appeal to you.
0: But first, Phoenix has a new Youth Poet Laureate. Annika Clark was chosen by Creative Youth of Arizona in September. Clark is an ASU student and we began our discussion by talking about when she was first bitten by the poetry bug.
4: I got interested in poetry when I was very young. My mom had me memorize poems. I think that's pretty typical for elementary school um, memorization. That made me super excited about performance. You know, we would do Shakespeare, we would do Robert Louis Stevenson, those kinds of things. And then I started writing my own poetry in middle school. I had an English teacher who was, she emphasized creative writing a lot. And I'm not sure I had ever thought I could write poems. It's kind of like (laughs) off limits for me, but she she encouraged it a lot.
0: What did you find about creative writing that you liked maybe more than say a traditional essay, for instance, uh, a rhetorical piece, you know, where you're trying to argue a position and put out facts and back it up?
4: Well, I love to read, and when I'm reading, I feel, especially fiction, I feel really understood, I would say, in a way that you don't get in more critical writing. Something artistic touches a different part of you, and so hopefully when I'm writing, I kind of want to be doing the same thing for other people, you know, getting to something deeper, um, some way that you can connect with someone, yeah, just tapping into The truth that you
0: have. Right. And maybe truth that you share with others as well. Um, You know, it's been very difficult, obviously, for creatives since the coronavirus pandemic began back in spring. I've talked to numerous people about how they've been dealing with it, not just because a lot of performance spaces are shuttered, but also how they're sort of tapping into themselves, maybe in a different way. I don't know if that makes sense. But one of those things that people use, of course, is technology like we're using because we're not face-to-face to to communicate, whether that Mm -hmm. might be teaching or, I don't know, holding a writing workshop, something like that. What are you experiencing? Any similarities that strike you with what I just described?
4: Yeah, I understand that because usually as a writer, I think you're reaching outside of yourself and trying to tap into your environment. So where you get ideas is from interacting with other people or interacting with the outside world. And then suddenly you're locked in your apartment or you're stuck in your house and you don't have that wealth of resources to draw from. So you kind of have to go inside, (laughs) which is difficult, but it's, it's useful too um, to not always focus on imagery. Maybe it's more emotional writing right now. And if you can try to stay connected, that's super important.
0: What types of poetry do you like to write? Does it need to rhyme? For instance, are you more attracted to shorter things or just sort of all over the map?
4: So I'm still super young, so it's not like I have an established genre that I'm married to. I don't feel married to any particular method of writing poetry. I'm still experimenting, but I love like prose poems, sort of short paragraph style poetry, a la James Tate. I love Lydia Davis. I know she would be considered a short story writer, but I think that it's like right on the edge of poetry and fiction. So just short stories um, in intense language, that's what I really
0: like. And perhaps that may come from your love of reading, because I think anyone who wants to be a good writer needs to be a well-versed reader in the first place of, you know, multiple genres, uh, writers of multiple ethnicities, multiple genders, obviously. As far as this competition was concerned for choosing the Phoenix Youth Poet Laureate, I guess I want to ask you a little bit about the process for this because it's really exciting. And I'm just intrigued and love the notion, of course, as a creative person myself and host of this podcast, that urban centers like Phoenix represent artists, uh, not just writers but creatives of all types, but that they you know, try to think about developing people as it were. How did you get involved in this contest and how did you feel when you were chosen?
4: I have lots of friends who share like various opportunities for young writers and it just popped up in my like social media sphere to apply. So that was back in May, I believe. And I submitted a creative resume. So everything that I've done in creative writing, as well as community service. And I also submitted a portfolio of poems. So I think it was about five poems and... You know, I waited over the summer and I almost forgot that it was going on. And I got a call <laughs> in August that I was a finalist, which was a pleasant surprise because all good news these days is very <laughs> rejuvenating. Right. And so I had the appointment ceremony at the beginning of September and I was chosen from the three finalists during that ceremony to be the poet laureate. Yeah, it was very exciting.
0: (laughs) Well, in closing, do you happen to have a short poem of your own that you could read for us?
4: Sure. Yeah, I could read you a short poem. Okay. Um, Great. This is called The Deluge. The old country floods slowly, and no one streams it on the news channels. What is there to see? They thought this day would never come. They thought God was only joking. They thought wrong. Their lives fall apart in little ways. The teapot overflows, the carpet molds, the animals flee to higher ground. It's almost time now. Is this where I get my fear of waves? They can see the wave coming over the course of some days. All they can do is watch it coming. They wander into the empty ocean bed where the tide pulls back. They don't know any better, or they don't care. What does it matter to raise a hand? Nothing can stop this. I know what it is to crumple under that heavenly weight. The old country does not heal these wounds.
0: That's a beautiful piece. What's that title again, Deluge?
4: Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah. Several months ago, before we went on summer hiatus, I had talked to a poet who described the Phoenix Basin as kind of a ghost ocean, and I thought that was just such a beautiful image, and your poem was kind of reminiscent of that because, of course, we live in the desert, but this used to be all ocean at one point in time, and so the the imagery there that you talk about with respect to waves was very enticing to me. Is this about some type of real event, or... Is this kind of just something as vast as the ocean, per se?
4: Um, It was actually inspired by a piece of art I was looking at called the Deluge. I think it was John Martin, maybe. I'm not positive. But it was based on the sort of biblical idea of a large flood that covers the earth. And I really like that comparison to the Basin of Phoenix, though. It is sort of like this empty basin waiting for (laughs) some sort of water to rush in.
0: Right. Or perhaps more creative people like you to become inspired by other creatives and sort of pass that on.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, Anika Clark, the brand new Phoenix Youth Poet Laureate, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You can find out more about Anika at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region.
3: Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org.
1: I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ.
0: Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Poet and retired teacher Joey Connolly is an old friend I haven't actually met in person. Years ago, when I lived on the island of Guam before coming to the Phoenix metro region, Connolly was living on the island of Tinian, which is to the north near Saipan. And back then, he appeared virtually on the original version of this show. He since moved to Nevada and is still an avid poet. He recently caught up after several years.
1: Nice to hear from you. I don't know. remember how many years ago it was, three, four, five. I'm not sure.
0: You know, I left Guam in 2017, so about three and a half years ago now. I've been at this particular station just over three years, just celebrated my anniversary. But the program that we call Word, which we're amidst right now, actually started on Guam. And you were living on Tinian, which is in the yep. commonwealth of the northern Marianas, uh, that and that's correct. to the north, very near Saipan, for folks mm. whose geography is a little bit lax.
1: <laughs> well, that would be the majority of the American public. I used to tell people, well, the only people who really knew about uh, Saipan and Tinian were veterans of World War II, and including um, President George Bush I, who actually got shot down in the Marianas.
0: Oh, is that right? I didn't realize that.
1: And got saved. I mean, talk about chances and what led to major moments in American history. A submarine came up. He was in the water, and his plane got shot down between Cy and Tinian. He was in the water, and he swam to the deck of this U.S. submarine and— lived to, you know, the rest of the story.
0: And Tinian is the islands where the Enola Gay took off from, right? In World War II?
1: That is is correct. Both uh, Enola Gay and um, I forget the name of the other one, but that's where Fat Man and Little Boy both took off. Fat Man, I think, was first to go off the Northfield runways there, and it dropped its bomb in Hiroshima. And then like three or four days later, the next plane uh, went off and it dropped its on uh, what? Uh, Nagasaki. Nagasaki. That was the first and last use of atomic weapons in hopefully the history of mankind.
0: You've been an avid writer for many years, and that is, of course, how we first met uh, virtually. We've never met face-to-face, but we talked on the phone several years back, and again, Mm -hmm. that was when I had the program at the public radio station on Guam, a simulcast of which also was broadcast in the northern Mariana Islands. What have you been doing lately? You've since moved from Tinian. How long ago did that happen?
1: Three years ago, Tinian got hit with... Two pretty devastating typhoons right in a row. One of them, which took out power, like no power at all in Saipan for months, you know, like no red lights and, and, you know, all kinds of devastation. And then the next year, it got hit again. The first one that I'm mentioning, they actually stopped over Saipan and just. Bam! Just barbarded it was is like in the eye, and then the next year it hit Tinian and took off the whole back half of my house, my workshop, my storage area. But what was worse, and nobody was killed in that, by the way. But what was worse about that, as far as my personal perspective was concerned, it it destroyed age-old 30-40 foot high mango trees and a whole citrus orchard that I used to walk out and get a variety of different lemons and limes and uh, oh, it was just a horror show so I needed some little medical care no big deal there but I it just you know it took, cost me thousands of dollars a year to just fly over to Saipan and get uh, get um, you know my prescription filled but a beep, but a boop, but a bop, you know, and anyway, that's, uh, so I came here where my wife and son are in Vegas and, um, I'm going to go back, but I'm here for a while.
0: You and a lot of writers that I know,
1: um, <laughs> in fact, uh, you should see my desk. That's... You should see my, my bed. You, you know, I just got papers and then I'll rip them out and rewrite them and put them in a notebook and then <laughs> that I don't see him for a long time.
0: Now, it's reminiscent, actually, of my own father, who used to be fond of saying, I have organized disorganization. And so <laughs> it's like, I have pile A, pile B, pile C, pile D, but I know what's in those piles, trust me.
1: Uh, so, uh, sonnets has been the primary thing that I've been writing for the past several years, of which I've been in, um, I've gone since I've talked to you, two times into up into northern hokkaido as you know living in tinian or living in sinema guam uh... the weather never goes below what seventy five or eighty and They're never about seventy five issue i used to have i used to want to go and did go up into northern Hokkaido um, during their fall early winter season just to be get into some snow and feel the feel what it's like to walk through the forest in beautiful three feet four foot high powder snow that just fluffs away at Zen dreams you know what I mean and um, so I've been up there a couple times and then been over to uh, South Korea came after two tours up there to you know I go for two or three weeks at a time. Then South Korea, where I've been most recently last November, where uh, but and again, the year before that. To, I stay in uh, way up in the national parks and it, at some uh, absolutely gorgeous, tranquil Zen monasteries there. I'm, I'm not necessarily a practicing Buddhist, but uh, I, I, I welcome their, their tranquility.
0: Well, let me ask you just on the thread of that with respect to Zen Buddhism, how has the coronavirus pandemic affected you from a spiritual standpoint? And do you use things like meditation? To me, writing poetry is an act of meditation.
1: Good question. I would say that I'm—I—I I, I wrote and have had, but I've, I've had two to three sonnets published weekly in the Saipan Tribune. They're published daily online, and he, the guy gave me, the editor gave me a uh, little column of my own, if you will, called Literary Nook, and um, so as far as how it's affected me, one of my last ones was called, uh, I, I was, it was about that I'm afraid of dying, and I haven't been afraid of dying my entire life, people that know me know that I, I go in many places, I've stayed down in the border of Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument and caves down there uh, years and years ago by myself hiked up in you know through Chiricahua and New Mexico blah 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 and uh, but how, how has it affected me my drug my tranquilizer Tom is music classical music and the older I get the older music I like so I'm right now probably I'd have to say it's uh, Bach, Mozart.
0: On that particular thread, with respect to classical music, our sister station to KJZZ is called K-Bach. And in fact, it's K-B-A-Q. So nice little play there on the call letters. But of course, folks can stream that live. A lot of folks are not commuting to work, so they're not listening to their traditional radio. They're listening online. Do you try to stick to formulaic writing for the most part, or do you do free verse as well?
1: I've gone to haiku, I don't know, for lack of a better word, conventions in Ottawa, Canada, universities in New York, in Japan, The more I read about old haiku, turns out, guess what, Tom? Japanese rhymed their stuff. (laughs) But America, when they got into it in the the late 50s, early 60s, they decided it wasn't. Who cares? So following formats, I'm that way about sonnets. Sonnets come to me naturally. And sonnets, you know, there's three quatrains and it ends with a rhyming couplet. And and sometimes I rhyme them and sometimes I don't. I also use acrostics. I've had lots and lots of fun with acrostics. And um, I'd love to read you some haiku that are about Arizona. Yeah, let's go for it. I could say slash, I guess, to show people where the next line was. Okay. The summer heat. On Route 66, slash, A Summer Drive Through Kingman, slash, Milkshake Memory. (laughs) That's a good one. And I give them titles. Uh, This is called Getting Gas in Bullhead City. Across the River, slash, Slot Machines Siphon Money, slash, Bullhead City Gas. Prescott (laughs) Winner. Getting Drunk I Go, slash, To the Head of Whiskey Row slash through fresh desert snow. Oh, it's beautiful. And the last one is called One Night in Yuma. Lady Cougar slash from Tombstone Territory slash Hot Night in Yuma. That's the end of that little haiku series.
0: Joey Connolly, who is affectionately known as Pepe Batbone. Pepe uh,
1: Batbon, yeah, it means Joe Beard. The Batbone is a type of uh, fighting rooster in, legally fought in the cinema.
0: Sizzus ma'ase, Joey. I really want to thank you again so much for coming to Word, and best of luck to you. Take care.
1: Okay. Glad to talk to you, Tom. And uh, ha'gumas, Tom. Ha'gumas. And dankaloo nasi, Esta Esta
0: Bye. You can find out more about Joey Connolly at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region.
3: KJZZ offers original podcasts, and if you're looking for lively conversation and analysis of the week's news, check out the Friday Newscap podcast or dive into the challenges of homelessness in Phoenix in the Unsheltered podcast. Find all of our podcasts from Here Arizona, The Show, and KJZZ at iTunes, Spotify, and at podcasts.kjzz.org.
0: KJZZ KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Pueblo Indian writer Rebecca Roanhorse has a new novel called Black Sun, which will be released later this month. She's currently living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and joined me recently to talk about the book, as well as her upcoming virtual event with Poison Pen, on October 16th at 7 p.m. I began our discussion by asking about the impetus for Black Sun and what the title means.
2: So Black Sun is referencing a solar eclipse, and the cultures in the book that are inspired by a version of the pre-Columbian Americas full of magic and political intrigue and giant crows, things like that, are all very focused on celestial bodies and astronomy. And so the solar eclipse, the Black Sun heralds a change, a world disruption. That's what the book is focused on. We
0: should say by pre Columbian, we're talking about pre European colonization. And you mentioned astronomy. There's a lot of surprising facts that you've researched on indigenous American civilizations with respect to astronomy. I mean, Western society kind of thinks of people like Tycho Brahe and Galileo. What can you tell me about more ancient celestial observations from advanced astronomers?
2: Yeah, well, they were incredibly sophisticated. And it really was, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in this. I'm just an enthusiastic amateur. So I do want to qualify my statements, but they were very sophisticated about what was going on in the heavens. And they often uh, built their cities along celestial ley lines that would align them with the equinox or the solstice or even the rising of venus uh things like that and they mapped things like the crab nebula supernova well before uh europeans could even agree that the earth was round (laughs) so they were doing some incredible things and it was just you know sort of part of their culture it was it was very um And, you know, I'm making a generalization because each culture was different. But I think this is a theme you see throughout pre-Columbian indigenous cultures, everywhere from Central America up to uh, the Mississippi Mound Builders.
0: And then what about your own personal history as far as your ethnicity is concerned?
2: I'm Black on my father's side and uh, I'm Pueblo on my mother's side. And so I feel a kinship with the ancestral Puebloans uh, that lived You know, in the areas of Chaco Canyon now and Mesa Verde and places like that. I live in Santa Fe, so I still sort of live in that region. And so this was also a chance for me to explore that my ancestry in that way.
0: Would you consider this science fiction or could we go broader than that? What kind of genre, if you had to pick one or two, would it qualify for?
2: Well, I'm a big believer in the mixing of genres, (laughs) So, but this one is pretty much an epic fantasy or what they call high fantasy. So if you like a Game of Thrones or a N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, this will probably appeal to you.
0: A lot of people love fantasy. In fact, at last year's local authors event here in Phoenix, I think they had over 40 at the downtown Maine Public Library. Fantasy, I want to say, was probably, gosh, if I had to estimate, something like 40% of the offerings there. It's just such a popular genre. And these were all state authors, so there's a lot of interest in the fantasy genre here in this state from what I gathered. Tell me a little bit more about this book. Some of the main characters, and as I understand, this follows four warring matriarchies vying for power. So it sounds political as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, there's a lot of fours going on. The symbology of four is pretty important in the book. So it does follow actually four main characters, four points of view. So it's a multiple point of view book. And each of the characters uh, are sort of on a different kind of journey. And they're all going to meet up and collide under this coming solar eclipse, which is also uh, the solstice and a new year in their culture. So you follow characters. They're all outsiders in certain ways. Uh, one has been, I guess, marked to Embody a god reborn, a god focused on vengeance. So you follow his journey uh, towards the city where they're all gonna uh, meet up. Another is tasked with taking him to that city, and she has a her own magic and her own history and past that she has to untangle to deal with. Uh, because there are also, I should say, uh, sirens and mermaids in this book. Uh, But they're my take on those, they're a little bit different. And then there's a woman who has risen through the establishment, the priesthood, who monitors all these uh, celestial events. But she's from the wrong side of town and uh, she's very controversial. She's a reformer uh, in an institution that does not want to be reformed. So she has her own enemies and her own challenges. And it's very much a trust no one situation for her. So she's gonna have some issues as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really rich characterization. And I'm wondering, as we frequently do borrow from real life, are these main characters patterned after people that you know? Are they more kind of amalgams of people
2: They're all sort of, I mentioned, you know, outsiders trying to find home. So trying to find a place where they belong, you know, in certain ways. So thematically, uh, I think that that sort of comes through. So little bits of that, you know, are part of from my own life and my own experiences. But there are also, there's a certain political figure that inspired the character Narampa, the one that is the priestess who is trying to reform and hit with uh, up against reality that people don't particularly care for reform, reformation most sure. of the time. She's sort of inspired by a real life person, but I don't think I'll mention who it is. but if you can no figure worries. it out?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of curious what about your background led you to this type of story. I understand that you practiced Indian law for quite a long time. Did that work its way into writing? Because sometimes law and politics obviously <laughs> intertwine.
2: You know, that's a great question. I don't think so much, although I practiced law for a decade, so I'm sure it creeps into my thinking all the time in ways that I don't necessarily even realize, but not consciously in this book. You know, I think this was inspired by... I don't know. Uh, My my desire, I guess, to write a big, sprawling epic fantasy that had the political intrigue and had the forbidden magic and had all those things that you often see in European-inspired epic fantasies, but you don't really get a lot of that focus on a world inspired by the Americas. And so that was really the goal, is to... Give the reader something juicy and interesting and hopefully, you know, can't put downable
0: to read. We all need escape, obviously, in this day and age with everything that's been going on since the early part of the year with the pandemic.
2: Definitely, if you need to shut out the real world for a little bit and escape into a world that is very much unlike your own, but perhaps some of the characters and the motivations feel very familiar, then this will do the trick. There is not a lot of recognizable world stuff going on, if that makes sense. But of course, you know, people are people and very much at the center of the story are people. There's a little bit of intrigue. There's a little bit of romance. There's a little bit of betrayal and friendships and everything that goes into living
0: you do have a virtual event coming up at Poison Pen later on in the month, and so folks who have enjoyed hearing a little bit about you on this podcast can check out Poison Pen October 16th at 7 p.m. Arizona time is when you're going to be conversing with uh, Patrick King, I believe. Rebecca Roanhorse, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking about your new novel, Black Sun.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: You can find out more about Rebecca Roanhorse on our website, Word org. Portions of Word have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award. We appreciate your continued support of the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening.
2: Word. Word? Word. Was the word?
3: Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.